You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Ann Patchett. This program originally aired in 2011. This is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, a conversation with Ann Patchett from Writers on a New England Stage. Patchett is author of five best-selling novels, including Run, The Patron Saint of Liars, and Bel Canto, winner of the Penn Faulkner Award and the Orange Prize. Truth and Beauty is one of her nonfiction books, a memoir of her loving and complicated friendship with the writer Lucy Greeley. Padgett's latest novel, State of Wonder, is topping just about every summer reading list. She took the stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth and revealed one thing that distinguishes State of Wonder from her previous work. For reasons I don't really understand, but I think probably has a lot to do with my father, who is a police officer, I have written a whole body of work in which almost no one swears and almost no one has sex. Uh, I, I don't know why I don't set out to write those books. And there's usually some sort of strong moral as well, which means I get taught in schools a lot. The scene that I'm going to read tonight is the one scene in the book in which uh, people swear like mad. Uh, but because I went to Catholic school for 12 years, and also I guess because this is on the radio, I, I won't be doing that. I, if we were just meeting each other one-on-one, I would be happy to swear. But I, I can't swear in front of a large group of people. So just as you're listening in your own minds, punch it up a little bit for me. Um, this is a book about people on the Amazon. This is a very funny story. When I wrote my first book, Patron Saint of Liars, and I was about 12, it was a really, really, really long time ago, um, I would go and give readings, and I would have like a half an hour set up before I would give the reading, because it seemed so complicated and so important that everyone knew exactly where we were in the novel and what was going on. And now I'm like, you're smart. You'll, you'll figure it out. It'll be fine. In this scene, there are five people on a pontoon boat on a tributary river off the Amazon. Three of those people are American doctors, Dr. Morena Singh and a couple of married doctors, Alan and Nancy Saturn. There are also two members of the Lakashi tribe, One is Bennett, who is 20 and wants to be a naturalist and doesn't speak English. And the other one is Easter, who is 11 or 12 and is profoundly deaf. And there's an interesting story with the character of Easter, which is when I was on tour for my last novel, Run, I did a program at the Washington National Cathedral. And a woman came up to me in the signing line afterwards, and she said that she was an interpreter for the deaf. And she said, I would like to see a character in a novel who is deaf, and that it is not a book about being deaf. Could you do that? And I said, yes, absolutely. So um, if anybody has something they'd like to see in the next novel, just, just let me know. You know, hopefully it's something interesting or ethical or not just you. Uh, <laughs> so those are the 12 people. They've gone to another tribe uh, to mail some letters. They don't have a post box, but somebody's going to take their letters in. And now they're on their way back to the Lakashis. They had not passed another living soul since they left the Jintas, and the world seemed silent and wide, belonging only to them. On the left, there was what appeared to be a crisp field of floating green lettuce. Benot tapped Easter's arm, and the boy turned the wheel and took them in. 
Beneath the sound of bird calls, there was the most delicate sound of crunching, as if the boat was making its way through a lightly frozen pond in December, and the ice, half the thickness of a window pane, was breaking apart to let them pass. Morena leaned over the front of the boat and watched the lettuce compact beneath the pontoons, while behind them the plants knitted themselves back together, smoothing over the path they had made without so much as a damaged leaf. We were here, Morena thought, and we were never here. It was a green so much brighter, so much fresher than anything else she'd seen in the jungle. Long-toed birds strolled across the delicate meadow with such confidence it was tempting to think those tiny floating plants might hold the weight of a single pharmacologist. The question was then whether the water was a foot deep or 20 feet deep. Bennett smacked Easter again and held up his hand and Easter stopped the boat. Bennett laid down on his belly then, his head and shoulders over the side. He had seen something. The Saturns came and leaned over him. Morena leaned over him. Is it a fish? Nancy said. Pexy? Bennett shook his head. I don't see anything, her husband said. Easter kept his eyes on Bennett, who, without looking at his captain again, pointed his hand to the left, to the right, and a little back. Easter held the throttle low and scooted the big boat around in the smallest possible increments until Bennett, every ounce of his attention fixed to the sweet spring of lettuce, abruptly raised his hand, and Easter killed the engine altogether. The silence was startling. The budding naturalist, still flat on his stomach, then dove that same hand down through the leaves and began to pull the colossus of all snakes into the boat. Human instinct dictates first, the snake must be kept away from the face. And so Bennett straightened his arm to rigid as if wishing to cast it away from his body while holding on too tight for the snake's comfort. The reptile's long, recurved teeth snapped ferociously into the air, diving towards Bennett's wrist while Bennett whipped the head from side to side, buying time until he could close the distance between hand and head. He rolled onto his side and then his back, managing somehow to pull the first half of the reptile on board while it flailed like a downed electrical wire. At its neck, the snake was as big around as Bennett's wrist. And from there, its body, smooth scales of darkest green with black blotches on the back and then creamy light underneath, swelled into a size more in keeping with his thigh. The snake kept pulling up and pulling up more and more of itself, slithering up and onto the deck in thick, muscular rolls where it sought to make its way onto Bennett's body, extending out against him, kneading him, while Bennett struggled mightily to keep the two faces apart. Do not let the faces touch. Put it back, Nancy screamed in English, the language that stood between Bennett and his dream of becoming a tour guide. Drop it. Snake, Alan Saturn said, and then repeated the word endlessly for good measure. He had caught it, sure enough, but he hadn't caught it close enough to the head. There was too much available snake above Benat's hand, and the snake's enormous gaping mouth sought purchase, its jaws opening wider than such a little head should reasonably dictate. In a flash, there was evidence of many rows of smaller teeth lined up waiting to clamp onto skin. Only by swinging it wildly did he keep the snake from sinking into his wrist. 
Benot seemed fixated only on the six inches of snake between the top of his fist and the tip of its tongue, while completely ignoring the enormous body that was working its way heavily onto his own body now. And Benot, who was wet with sweat and the water the snake had brought on board, was laughing. There, on his back, pinned like a wrestler in an unsporting match, he roared with a powerful joy while he tried to work one hand upwards with the assistance of the other hand. Easter, ever helpful, grabbed onto the lower half of their guest and tried to pry it off his friend. There was too much coiling and uncoiling for an accurate measurement, but the snake appeared to be 15 feet long, 18 when it stretched. Bennett appeared to be five feet, five inches, and was outweighed by as much as 50 pounds. The three doctors pressed away, screaming various invectives in an unhelpful language. Morena wanted to jump in the water and run across the lettuce with the long-toed birds, but who could say that the snake didn't have a family down there? There was an odor that none of them recognized, the smell of furious reptile, an oily stench of putrid rage that sunk into the membranes of their nostrils as if it planned to stay there forever. The back half of the snake whipped up and made itself a knot around Easter's slender waist and wrapped and wrapped, and at the moment its head swung past, Easter reached into the air, his hand a quarter second faster than the snake, grabbing its throat just below the head, well above Benot's fist. Easter caught the snake that Benot had caught. Oh, the, the whooping the triumph and revelry. They shook the jungle with their screams, Benot and Easter, for sure enough, Easter was screaming, and the sound was so piercing, so much like the agony of death, that all three doctors were sure the boy was bitten, and they lunged forward with the instinct of human decency to save his life. But Easter was grinning madly as he gripped the snake, while Benot, who was considerably stronger, held fast below they looked into the creature's mouth now like a carnival attraction, while the tongue, a silvered spark of light, licked towards them. It's an anaconda, Alan said. He caught an anaconda with his hands. Alan's Saturn seemed to be at the perfect intersection of the thrilling achievement of the Lakashi, the terror of Morena and his wife, and the rage of the snake, whose eyes had focused into two pinpoints of murderous desire. Easter coughed. Maybe Morena understood it before he did, but of course that would be impossible to say. In a minute, everything was clear to her, and she stepped through the wall of her own revulsion and fear and took the tail end of the snake that was pressed into Easter's hip. Its flesh was at once clammy and dry, cool despite the terrible heat of the day. She had once dissected a snake in a college biology class, a small black garter snake, long dead and stinking of formaldehyde. She had cut it down the center and pinned it open on a wax-bottom pan. To the best of her memory, it was the only snake she had ever touched. She touched the second one as she worked to pull it from the boy. When she had pried a little of it loose, she moved her hands up the body, hand over hand, like she was working her way up a rope, except the end of the rope began to wrap around her wrist. It was a muscle like nothing she had ever encountered. She pulled. 
Easter coughed again. Benot could see the problem now. His friend was wrapped inside the snake, and the snake had figured out a way to loosen the hand that held its neck. Benot slid his hand up to cover Easter's hand just as Easter's hand fell away. Easter tried to work his own small hands between himself and the snake, and when he exhaled just to get his fingertips in between them, the snake felt the movement of his breath and squeezed. Easter's eyes shot first to Morena, and there she saw the very soul of him in his fear. And she pulled, and Alan's hands were by her hands, and they were pulling together, all of them bent out from the throat, while Nancy Saturn cried for a knife, a knife, and then Jaca. But Benot could not hear her now. He was frozen to the snake that was in the business of killing his friend, who may have been 11 or 12, but was very small for his age. Tell me there is a knife on this boat, Nancy said. Easter's lips were turning blue, either from the lack of oxygen or the weight of the snake he went down on his knees. It occurred to Morena that his spine could snap, and they all went down on their knees. Morena knew there was a machete strapped to the steering column of the boat, the knife that Easter had used to trim away the branches to tie the boat to the tree. In an instant, she was up. The knife was nearly as long as her arm, heavy as a tennis racket, and she put the blade just above Benot's fist and with a single pass, sliced off the head. It would have been the greatest moment of her life had cutting off the head killed the snake, but beheading it changed nothing. On the deck, the busy head continued to snap its murderous teeth, moving in a slow circle as the jaw opened and closed while the body went about the business of strangling the boy. Jesus, she said. She could see the tendons standing out on Bennett's neck. She could see his crooked bottom teeth, his open jaw jutting forward in exertion, the blood of the headless snake running down his arm, while Bennett continued to pull the top and the Saturns continued to pull the bottom and in the Middle Easter continued his death. Morena began to saw into the rolls of headless snake, her hand at Easter's head and the point of the machete at his toes. Her objective was to cut through both coils simultaneously as she doubted there would be time to do it twice. At no point did Easter make a sound. He would not use another teaspoon of his breath he stayed stock still inside this jacket and kept his eyes on Morena. First, there was a large vertebral column that required Morena to lean in as she sawed as much as she would have leaned in to saw apart a human arm with a long knife at a bad angle. She had worried about pressing too hard and cutting into Easter, but Easter was still very far away. She cracked into the vertebra in the first coil and then worked the knife from side to side to break the second bend. She then cut through the ribs, the thick muscles that ran down the belly scoot, the colloquia. When she was very close to Easter, she put the knife down and ripped the bit of snake that was left with her hands. The heavy weight worked in her favor then, tearing itself as it fell to the deck. Nancy Saturn picked the boy up, light as air, this child and stretched him out beside his murderer and blew into his mouth and blew her lips reined in to cover so small a mouth. With one hand behind his neck, she tilted back his head and with her other hand blocked his nose and she blew until she saw his chest rise and none of them could tell whose breath it was. She stopped for a minute. It was his. 
shallow and uneven at first, but his own. She lifted up his shirt and lightly touched the red welts across his torso, and Alan Saturn kneeled beside her and put his ear to Easter's chest. Benot crouched away from them, his head against his knees, his back heaving with his breath, while on the other side of the boat, Easter blinked. Marina sat down beside him then in the widening pool of blood and took his hand. It was still daylight when they got back. Alan Saturn was driving the boat, and even though a couple dozen Lakashi were waiting on the shore, the branches that they held in their hands had not been lit. When they saw the boat, they stood up to watch, but they did not jump or cry out. It could have been because the travelers had only been gone for half a day, and it could have been because Dr. Swenson was not among them. Either way, everyone on the boat was relieved, even though there was more to celebrate now than there had been in all of their lives combined. But when Alan Saturn pulled up next to the little dock and the Lakashi came on board the boat, the calling and crying broke forth in earnest, not the theatrical display of a week before, but a deep and abiding joy Morena had not seen. Three men picked up three large chunks of snake from the blood-slicked deck, and a fourth man picked up the head, the very head Morena had meant to kick into the water, though she had been unwilling to touch it again, even with her foot. They carried off the pieces of snake, each as heavy as a small tree, and hoisted them about their heads to show the ebullient crowd. It would be a feast to tell the grandchildren about for years to come. There would be anaconda for dinner tonight. Thank you. I hope you all ate before you came. Um, so now I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, having read you a story, I, I am by nature a storyteller. What I love about my job is research and the fact that I get to pick something up that I don't know anything about and find out things about it. And there were a lot of different things that I did getting ready for this book, but one of them was I went to the Amazon probably when I was about halfway through the book. And this was in the golden days of my life when Gourmet Magazine was up and running. I wrote for Gourmet for 10 years, and I loved that magazine, and I insanely loved the people who ran it, Ruth Reichel and Bill Sertle, and just a great, great group of people who let me do anything I wanted to do. And I I actually single-handedly bankrupted them with my uh, expense account. When I was working on Bel Canto, I called and said, I don't know anything about opera. I, I need to get up to speed. I really need to go to Italy and see all the great opera houses of Italy. Would that be okay? And they said, oh, that's a great idea. We would love to send you to Italy. And it's funny because it's not that I objected to paying for the trips, although it is always more fun to have somebody else pay for your trips. But I, I don't know how to book these things. Um, and so when I wanted to write about the Amazon, I called my editor, can I go to the Amazon? Because they'll figure it all out. And I wanted to be on a boat, and I also wanted to be in the jungle. So in the first half of the trip, my husband came with me, and we were on this fabulous boat. It had about 12 rooms on it. And every day, they would divide up the guests and they would put us in two open jackboats that were about 12 or 15 feet long 
with an outboard motor on the back and, and a guide who would drive us. And um, we would go for three or four hours out and then turn around and come back up these tiny tributaries where you go right, left, right, left, 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 right. You know, the river splits and splits and splits and splits. And the whole time I'm thinking, boy, if this guy has a heart attack, we are so up a creek. Um, <laughs> and at one point, we went into a lettuce pond. And one of the guests, mind you, not one of the guides, one of the guests said, stop the boat a little bit back, a little to the side, and he pulls an anaconda into the boat. He pulls this big anaconda into the boat. And the snake is like, they're doing this. You know, all the snake wants is to get on his face. And the snake is wrapping around him, and, and this man, whose name was Greg Greer, although I did not know that in the time, is thrilled. And he's giving us a lecture on the anaconda as the anaconda is trying to suck his face off. Um, and it, it turns out that Greg Greer is a naturalist and a herpetologist, and he goes all over the world picking up snakes. And he knows the name of every bird and every tree and every insect in every country in the world. Really the most remarkable person I have ever met. And if you want to have fun tonight, go home and Google Mr. Greg's Reptile Roadshow, because he will also come to your Boy Scout troop with snakes and explain them all to you. And um, anyway, the, I learned a lot of things from that moment, such as an anaconda, when it thinks it's going to die, gives off a smell like nothing you could ever possibly imagine. And it does stay in your nose for a long time. And Greg kept this snake on the boat for about 20 minutes and had us all look in its mouth and explain the jaw has no hinges and it has three rows of teeth. And I really did think I would like to get off this boat now. Um, <laughs> but the only place off the boat is into the river where mom snake and cousin snake, no doubt, are living under the boat. Um, not only that, I did a lot of interesting things for this book. I went to the Bethesda Naval Hospital, called in advance, and said I would like to know more about malaria. And the person who was the head of developing malaria vaccines said we'd love to have you. I had no idea who I was or what I was doing, although I told him he didn't care. And uh, spent six hours with me showing me where they grow their mosquitoes and explaining how they work the trial vaccines and how they give people malaria. I really wanted malaria. It's interesting, they, they actually get volunteers. They work on a vaccine, they give you the vaccine, which doesn't work because there is no vaccine for malaria, and then they take five mosquitoes that are infected with malaria and they put them in a cup and they put a, literally a piece of pantyhose over the cup with a rubber band and you hold it on your arm or leg until you get five mosquito bites and then 10 days later you get malaria and they know the vaccine doesn't work. And I thought, Sign me up. I really, that sounds so great. But because I've written for the New York Times, they apparently don't, the government doesn't want to give malaria to anybody who has written for the New York Times. Um, and I saw a cesarean section. I have a friend who's a surgeon who let me go and watch a cesarean, which I have to say, with all due respect to anyone in the room who may have had a cesarean, I'm super sorry for you. Um, it was worse than the snake. It was so, so bad. Um, 
so bad. And I have a phenomenally high threshold for anything bloody or queasy. I am, I am rock solid, and I did hit the floor, but not until this baby, who frankly appeared to be a third grader, was out. Um, anyway, so it's a great, great job because I get to I get to just figure out what I want to know about and then make a book up about it. And the one thing that I know to be absolutely true about human nature, and this is true for novelists, but it's, it's true for everybody, everybody, people really do want to talk about what they love and what they know about. They really, all of us want to share what they do. And I have found in my life I can go to anyone and look them in the eye and lean forward slightly with a pad of paper and a pen and say, I really want to know what you do. And I do. I really want you to tell me everything about what you do. And I will sit very still and look you right in the eye. And it's great. You should try it. It's a beautiful thing. So thank you. Hoje não tem papo, jogo-lhe um quebrante num instante Você vira sapo, ouviu na crença príncipe Volta ao seu posto de lenda This is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Era um Today, author Anne Patchett from Writers on a New England Stage recorded in front of a live audience at the Portsmouth Music Hall. Before the break, we heard a little about Patchett's research for her new novel, State of Wonder. That journey took her to the depths of the Amazon rainforest, where she came face to face with a giant anaconda, among other things. I joined Patchett on stage for a conversation that began with a question from a member of the audience at the Music Hall, who wondered, given that we're told to write what we know, is it difficult for Patchett to master so many diverse settings and plots in her novels? I always say writing what you know is a brilliant piece of advice if what you know is interesting. <laughs> and um, truly, what I know is not interesting. I have a very dull life. Uh, I'm kind of a housewife. I live in Nashville. I spent 12 years in Catholic school, and we were pretty much raised to either be nuns or mothers. I have the most astonishing set of domestic skills you've ever seen. I can cook and knit one of those complicated Irish fisherman sweaters and <laughs> sew my own clothes and clean. It, but you don't want to write, read books about that, and I probably don't want to write them. So I think it's so much more interesting to write outside of yourself, to rely on your imagination. And of course... There's always an emotional core of the books that, that are my issues and my core. So there's an element of something about me in there. Another thing that's common, at least at Bel Canto, a lot of people have asked questions about Bel Canto sure. that we hope to get to. Like being in the Amazon, it's a very isolated and very kind of narrow slice of the universe. What's that's my shtick. <laughs> yeah. How's that going for you? It's working really well. Um, I had this revelation years ago. I was working on Magician's Assistant and not too far away from here at the McDowell Colony in Peterborough. 
And Dorothy Allison was there, and she had written Bastard Out of Carolina, which was such a huge hit, and she was at that time working on Cave Dweller. And she was, she was worried in, about what she was working on, and she looked at me and she said, I think I only have one story to tell. And I realized at that moment that I only had one story to tell, and that probably all writers at their essential core only have one story to tell, and mine is that. I throw a group of disparate people together, confine them in some way, and then see how they form a society or a family. It's Lord of the Flies, it's Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. You know, stick them there, close the door, take the boat away, see who lives. It's <laughs> I really liked that Agatha Christie book. I was thinking yeah. Agatha Christie then there when was you one, just said or that. Ten Little Indians, yeah. yeah. Well, the, two of the characters in this book who are thrown together are Morena Singh, mm -hmm. uh, who we heard a lot of heroic things about, <laughs> and also Dr. Anik Swenson, yes. who was her former teacher. Yes. And I've been reading about this book and listening to interviews that you've done on this book, and you've talked about how the nut of this book is really about that powerful relationship between a teacher and a student. I know you've also studied with Russell Banks and with Grace Paling. I wonder if there's something about them you're not telling us. No, no. I mean, I, I have had my scary teachers, but um, the teachers that I loved, which were Russell Grace and Alan Gerganis, uh, especially. Alan Gerganis. When I was an undergraduate at Sarah Lawrence, I studied with the three of them. And it was the powerful sway they had over me without intending to. I, the person I am in this chair tonight has more to do with those three people, and especially with Alan Gerganis, than probably my parents. I mean, I shaped myself in order to be the kind of person that I thought would make them proud. Mm. Not to be like them, but to be someone that they would be proud of. And the amazing phenomenon is the student adores the teacher and focuses on them, even if they're terrified of them. And the teacher really doesn't know the student for the most part. I've also had the experience as a teacher of seeing a student who I had 15 or 20 years ago who came to me and, and I don't know this person, I've never seen them, I don't know their name, I don't know their face. And they said, I was in your fiction writing class in 1989 and I was all set to go to medical school and I threw my dreams away and became a fiction writer and I teach English now and you changed my life. One, I think your parents must want to hunt me down and kill me. <laughs> and two, I think, how is it possible that I changed the life of someone that I can't even remember? But this is a crusty, imperious well, person. That's a more fun character. Yeah, well, I was going to ask you that. Wasn't that, and Morena says something like, or you compare Morena needing something from her as Oliver Twist going up with the empty bowl and saying, please, sir, <laughs> you know? Just a little just more. Just a little more. Yeah. But what's it exciting to get inside the head of such a character? I mean, she's not nice. It's that she lacks niceties. She is extremely clear. Mm. She doesn't suffer fools gladly or really anyone. She has a mission and she's going to get it done. Um, but she was a great character to write. My husband is a doctor, and for the last 17 years that I've known him, I've been listening to horror stories about medical school and residency, and it's, 
It seems to be a system based on fraternity hazing, uh, where you can just torture people at will and they have to take it because that's part of the deal. And so making up a character like that was a piece of cake. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about her mission, just to let the audience here know what Dr. Onyx Swenson was so directed, so determined to get done. Sure. Uh, Dr. Onyx Swenson has discovered a tribe in the Amazon, the Lakashi tribe, named after my favorite breakfast cereal. <laughs> and uh, I've had several interviewers say, I've been Googling the Lakashi tribe and I just can't find them. How do you spell it? Like, no, it's, it's a cereal. I like the protein plus. Um, anyway, she discovers this tribe in the Amazon where the women maintain everlasting fertility. They can have babies up until the time they die. And they accomplish this. I know, I always say, it's a horror novel, huh? Because the other book that really, really inspired this novel was Pinocchio. Because Pinocchio thinks it would be so great to not go to school and eat candy all day and shoot billiards and it doesn't go so well for Pinocchio. So this sort of plays off this thing where women seem to want to keep every option open for all eternity. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying maybe all eternity isn't such a good idea. But the Lakashi women gnaw on the bark of a particular tree and a moth, once the bark is is cracked, the moth comes and lays its eggs in the opening and they gnaw and it's a combination of their saliva and the bark and the eggs. It took me a long time to come up with this. Uh, and by doing that, which they don't understand, this is how they maintain their fertility. And Morena, why is Morena sing in the Amazon in the first place? She's been sent down to the Amazon because the pharmaceutical drug company that she works for, I guess that is redundant, pharmaceutical drug company, uh, is called Vogel, and they have been funding Dr. Swenson's research for many, many, many years because, of course, it's going to make a fortune for them if she can synthesize this bark and egg mixture and turn it into a pill for American women. But she's, she's gone rogue and they don't know where she is because she's so protective of the Lakashi tribe that she won't even tell the drug company where they are. They just keep pumping money down there and they are not getting any progress reports. So they sent Morena's office mate, Dr. Anders Ekman, the very best fictional name I've ever come up with in my life. <laughs> and you've got quite a record. <laughs> Anders Ekman. I have, my friend Jane Hamilton, the novelist, said the other day that even though she was in her 50s, she and her husband were planning to have one more child, <laughs> boy or girl, so they could name it Anders Ekman. Uh, Anders Ekman has been sent down to the Amazon to find Dr. Swenson, and he dies of a fever. And so Morena is on a dual mission, both to find out about the drug and its progress, but also because Anders' wife wants to know what really happened to him. So Morena, to sketch out her character a little, she's Indian-American, she's divorced. Um, she's in a good enough relationship with mm -hmm. Mr. Fox, who is actually the CEO of Vogel, right. the pharmaceutical company. She's also 42. Yes. Why is 42 so important for her? Well, because she isn't positive that she wants to have a baby, but maybe she wants to have a baby. She's just not quite making up her mind, and the relationship, which is 
good isn't necessarily the relationship that she would get a baby out of, and mm -hmm. Mr. Fox is a good bit older, and he has grown children, and they haven't really talked about it. Does any of this strike any of you as familiar? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, she, she might be someone who could benefit from this drug. And Dr. Swenson says to her, when they're venturing into the Amazon, this is a good job for old maids. That's right. That's right, because nobody will really care if you get killed on this trip, is what she means. She, th she thinks it's terrible that Anders Ekman came because he had a wife and three children. Yeah. So when she finds out that Marina is single and has no children, she feels a little better because she's a little more dispensable. Well, that's part of her singular focus. Does she really care about the people she's serving, or is it just the science? Well, she's not serving them. No, she, it is just the science. Easter is the only one who can actually puncture through her. Funny that he's deaf and mute. Those children I hear are much easier to love. <laughs> the ones that don't ever, don't ever talk back and just kind of nod. I, well, I, I actually, <laughs> I, I am saying that sentence and at the same time I'm thinking, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> But it's a terrific name also, Easter, you know, this kind of bright little spark. A lot of great names in here. Mr. Fox, the Vogel CEO, who we first meet. We first meet the fox in a lab full of rodents, which was kind of interesting. That is interesting. And can I tell you the best name story? Which one? The Bovenders. Oh, tell me. There is a couple in this novel, Jack and Barbara Bovender, and they are beautiful, tall, blonde Australian surfers and they work for Dr. Swenson in Manaus, and they keep people from finding her, and they handle her mail and take care of her apartment. They're gorgeous, feckless bohemians. But how they came to pass, I had just started this book. I'm on the board of my public library in Nashville, and every year we have a big gala fundraiser, and one of the programs that we have is a silent auction. So a couple of years ago, I donated to the auction the right to buy your way into one of my <laughs> novels. For the highest bidder, I would name a character after you. And it was really funny because our guest author that year was John Irving. And this was announced at the patrons party the night before. And I'm in the audience, and John Irving is up on stage, and the head of the foundation board gets up and says, you know, this is what we're going to do. This is what Anne's going to do. And everybody is, oh, this is very exciting. And John Irving stands up from stage, and he says, Anne, don't do it. Don't do it. You are getting ready to make the biggest mistake of your life. I did this once. My friends bought it for their daughter, who was this lovely 16-year-old girl, and I made her the most hideous, murderous harridan. She was the most conniving, hateful creation in my career. But then I was completely wedded to the name and there was no backing out. My friends never spoke to me again. Turn back. This is all from stage. Turn back. Well, that night, the bow vendors, Jack and Barbara, <laughs> bought the auction item for a good bit of money. And I know the bow vendors. They are small people in their 60s, and they are extremely venerable members of society, uh, huge supporters of the arts. They're, they're small, rich people, and they're nice, and they're quiet. And I immediately started thinking, what could I do for the bow vendors? What could I, how could I do this? And I invented these people. Well, 
I happen to know exactly one Australian in Nashville, Nicole Kidman, right? <laughs> you know, when you need an Australian, why not go for the really big one? So I, I called Nicole Kidman and I was like, okay, I need some Aussie lingo, I need some surfer dude lingo. And she called Australian surfers for me and got me some good lingo. And that's the story of the Bowvenders. That's so funny. <laughs> and you know the worst part is? What? Are I they happy? Do you I know? I don't know if they have read the book yet. Oh. When I got it, I gave it to them. I've been terrified, and I have not heard from them. Oh. They, because the Bowvenders also smoke dope and have a lot of sex. <laughs> I, um... Okay. It could work out fine, right? They could be super flattered. Okay, here's a question. How did Greg Greer get the anaconda off your boat? Oh, he, he's a professional. He peeled it off and, you know, balled it up and tossed it over. Um, but and the anaconda was happy to go. But he, <laughs> Greg was so great. He was such a huge help to me. And when I wrote that scene that I read earlier, I originally had Morena kill the anaconda with a scalpel. And Greg said, that would be like removing your thigh with a scalpel. You would last about 30 seconds mm -hmm. and it would break. There's no way you could kill an anaconda with a scalpel. And I said, well, we just cut off the head. And he said, oh no, it'll just keep going and keep going. Well. This is about a transformation of Morena, too, you know, from this not-so-confident woman. Then she starts becoming a detective, you know. She goes and she searches out the Bovenders and gets through their screening process to get to Dr. Swenson. It's a real transformation for her. It is, and a lot of it is that she keeps losing everything. She, oh, yes, she loses her cell phone, she loses her clothing. Her, why did, you, why did her, you take everything away? Her luggage twice. Does anybody ever come to the end of a trip and feel good about all the things they brought with them? Yeah. And so she keeps losing it. And, and at one point, she literally loses the clothes off her back. The Lakashi trick her out of the outfit she's wearing. And she spends the rest of the novel in a little Lakashi dress. Another great detail, the Lakashi dresses are all pretty much maternity dresses. Why not? They're right. pregnant they're all just, the time. That's right. They're all just these little burlap <laughs> trapezes. But, you know, they're also down there in the jungle and nobody is emailing back on the internet. It's, it's another way you sort of isolate, you know, no cell phone, no internet. I have to do that. Think about this, friends. I do not know how to write a plot. And plot is my specialty. Plot is what I'm good at as a writer. I don't know how to write a plot in which people have phones. <laughs> because so much of a plot is about not knowing what's going on, a failure to communicate. If, if everybody was in touch, there would be no book. If everybody could Google everything immediately, why would you need to write a novel? So I am constantly straining to figure out how it is that no one would have a phone. And when I was down in the Amazon, at one point in this open jackboat, for hours and hours with a different group of people and we were going to see the giant lily pads and we get off and we hike for hours. We are so far into the beating armpit of nowhere and the guy's cell phone goes off and he answers his phone and he says, oh, golf? No. <laughs> 10 o'clock today? Huh? 
No. I'm in the Amazon. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? What the hell? It's a global satellite phone. He can talk in Antarctica. Well, I didn't will this, Anne, um, but a lot of people have asked about Truth and Beauty, sure. the book that you oh. wrote about Lucy Greeley. Do you regret writing Truth and Beauty after the reaction of your friend's family? No, not at all. What uh, was the I reaction mean, of could, your friend's I'm family? I'm sure I could give a more, <laughs> more complete answer on that one. Um, Lucy's older sister wrote a piece in The Guardian um, about what a bad person I was. And oddly, I never read it because when it first came out, uh, my friend Elizabeth McCracken, it was one of those things that sort of went viral on the Internet, called me up and said, whatever you do, don't ever read this. And I never read it. But no, I wrote a book that was about my relationship with Lucy. It wasn't about her family wasn't about her or me, it was about us. It was about our friendship. Mm -hmm. And Well, there was another uproar about it. Um, I read about <laughs> a South Carolina lawyer who that singled that book out. It was on a freshman reading list for, what, Clemson University? Yes, yes. And he said it was pornographic. That it was, was bad. It that was, was bad. Well, well it was I, I was invited to do um, an all-school reads program. I'm invited to do these a lot, again, because I don't tend to swear or have a lot of sex in my books, but the whole incoming freshman class at Clemson, believe me, I didn't ask them to do it, was sent Truth and Beauty, a book that was voted by the American Library Association as being the most, what was it? It was the book for adults that was most appropriate for teen readers of that year. This is not a racy book. And someone who was a Clemson alumni decided that the book was pornographic and really whipped up a big campaign against the book and against me. And it had to do with the desire, because Clemson is a state school, to be able to monitor the reading lists for all of the classes. And this was going on, and I thought, you know, I live in Tennessee. My sister lived in South Carolina at the time, and she would call me, and she would say, do you, do you know you're a pornographer? Do you know you're on the news tonight? Do you know they're talking about what a disgusting pervert you are again on the news tonight? And I thought, oh, I'm going to go. I don't care. I live in Tennessee. We had the Scopes monkey trial. We, we know from this <laughs> stuff. And when I went... There were protesters that had been bussed in from all over the state of South Carolina. I had a bodyguard Whoa. that the president of the college had hired for me. And um, I was in an auditorium that was sealed off to everybody except the freshman class. And it turned very, very ugly. And I was rushed from the building. I mean, it was really crazy. It was really crazy, and then I wrote a great big piece about it in the Atlantic Monthly, which is how you get back at these people. <laughs> Not that I actually believe that anybody in South Carolina reads the Atlantic Monthly. Um, Snap. You know what? I've got a bitterness there that is huge, huge. North Carolina, they all read. They read Harper's. Um, they read the Utney Reader in North Carolina. In your NPR interview, you mentioned overcoming doubtful writing moments. Can you explain the technique you used for this? The nice thing about being 47 and having written eight books is that when I have a doubtful writing moment, I think, 
oh, this is the doubtful writing moment. <laughs> this is page 80. This is where I am positive that this is the worst piece of trash I've ever written in my life, and I should just hit the delete button and get rid of all of it and see if I could go to medical school. And also, I don't believe in writer's block. I think writer's block is, is just a myth that was invented by people who either don't want to work or people who aren't ready to get an idea down on paper. So if I can't write, if I'm stuck, it's because I'm trying to figure something out. The other thing is my husband, who is a doctor, goes to work every single day, and he doesn't get doctor's block. He doesn't just say, I don't have any idea what this patient has, and I'm just going to go home and lie on the couch and stare at the ceiling and eat popcorn, which is what writers do. You know, it's like we have this built-in get-out-of-jail-free card going called writer's block. Uh, but if you work, you just work, and sooner or later you'll get through it. When you are researching, do you get distracted from your story, or do you discover the story as you research? Research is the La Brea tar pits for the novelist. You just, <laughs> you just go in and you never get out. And the way I handle it is that I do my research after... I write the scene. So I write the cesarean scene the way I think it would go, and then I go watch the cesarean, and I go back and correct it. Because otherwise, if you, if you see a cesarean and you haven't written the scene, you start thinking, maybe I should see them take twins out. You know, maybe I need to go to more cesarean sections. Because you don't really want to write. You want to stall. And once you're wise to your own games, you have to outfox yourself. So researching afterwards, I think, is the key. Here's another note. Um, I love that when I read your books, I know I'm going to read a book unlike any other on the shelf. Thank you. Do you ever get pushback from your editors to write something more commercial? <laughs> I'm actually their big money girl I was right now. <laughs> uh, no, and here's New York how, Times bestseller after bestseller. Here's how I manage. I don't sell my books until they're finished. Huh. Nor do I sign any contract with my publisher saying I will sell them my next book. I write the book I want to read, and I write a book entirely for myself. And when it's done, this is the other weird thing, I hold on to it for about two or three weeks, and I really care, and then I break from it forever. Mm. I never read it again. I never think about it again. Good reviews, bad reviews, it just doesn't matter. It's as if I never wrote it. Well, bravo. Game of the